Hi everybody, my name is Clayton Keenan. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Christ Community Church. And we're in the middle of a series called Elephants, the questions we can't ignore. And today I've got another elephant idiom for you. You ever been a part of a white elephant gift party? You know, where people wrap up something ridiculous, bring it to the party, trade, and you go home with something that you don't really want and can't really use, like a can of Spam or a shirt with Nicolas Cage's face on it. These can be a lot of fun, but you ever wondered, why do we call them white elephants? Let's find out. Albino or white elephants are rare, which is why in some Southeast Asian cultures they're considered sacred. Fun fact, in Thailand, whenever a white elephant is found, it's presented to the king and considered his property. It's also a sign that his kingdom is going to be blessed. Because they're considered sacred, there are laws that prevent white elephants from being used in manual labor, which means that these animals are not very practical, but they're expensive to maintain. Just think of how much an elephant eats. It's said in the past that when a king was displeased with one of his officials, he would honor them with the gift of a white elephant. He would give them the animal, but not the land or the money to take care of it. The official would be obligated to care for the elephant on the king's behalf, but he'd have to pay for it out of his own pocket. Pretty soon, the official would be financially ruined and dishonored. This is the reason white elephant came to refer to an unwanted gift. Fortunately for you, the only cost of wearing that Nicolas Cage t-shirt is your pride. Today we've got a guest speaker who I promise will not be an unwanted gift. Jay Warner Wallace is a cold case homicide detective. Until the age of 35, he was an outspoken atheist, but then he put those detective skills to work on the claims of Christianity. By the time he was done, he was convinced they were true. He's the best-selling author of several books, including Cold Case Christianity and God's Crime Scene. Let's give Jay Warner Wallace a warm welcome as he comes up onto the stage. Very cool. Well, I'm glad to be with you here in St. Charles. If you're watching us in DeKalb or in Blackberry Creek or in Streamwood, Bartlett, I'm so glad to be part of your church family for one week. And by the way, like, do you guys like have a priority about how you list the other campuses? <laughs> uh, you, do you get mad if DeKalb comes in second, if I say Blackberry Creek first? I kind of wondered, so I'm just trying to play it safe and mention everybody, okay? Um, I'm glad to be here, and this is a great church family. I, I live in Southern California. I haven't always been part of church families. As a matter of fact, the first 35 years I, I was uh, uh, living on planet Earth in Southern California, I was not part of a church family. I didn't know anybody who was a Christian. The only Christians I knew were people who are at my work who were other detectives who really, if you asked them why is Christianity true, they couldn't answer. They could tell you why this guy's our suspect, but they couldn't tell you why they could, why should I trust the, the, the Bible? Why should I trust what the gospels tell me? The other group of Christians I knew were the people who were taken to jail because they would often tell me they were Christians. So I thought of those two groups, I don't have any interest in being part of either of those two groups. So what I started is just kind of stated myself and I worked my cases. Now you may have seen some of my cases because if you like to watch uh, crime shows, Dateline especially, you probably have seen a lot of the cases that even a couple of them might even talk about today. Uh, because I think my cases have been on Dateline more than any other detective in the country. These are unsolved murders. Uh, there's no statute of limitations on a murder. If I got a case of, of theft after a certain number of years, depending on the state, you can't work that case anymore. It's expired. But homicides aren't like that. They stay open. Now, I started to think as an atheist, and I made fun of a lot of my Christian friends, that they really didn't have any good reason to believe Christianity was true, not in the same way we make cases. But then I tested that at the age of 35. I went out, didn't own a Bible, but I bought one. 
a pew Bible. I spent $6, didn't want to spend too much money on that, right? And I started to look at the Gospels using the skills I had developed as a detective. And I had been around police work my entire life. As a matter of fact, my son is still doing the same work that I uh, did for years. He's been in our agency for about five years. He's now a field training officer. And his name is, unsurprisingly, Jim Wallace, okay? We're like the George Foreman of law enforcement, okay? We use the same name over and over and over. Do you guys know who George Foreman is? Yeah, fighter from years ago. He's got six boys. They're all named George Foreman. That's right. So he's got the same you know, uniform, same nameplate that I had before him, using the same tools that I used before him. And I used the same tools that my dad used before me with the same name at the same agency. As a matter of fact, if you've called our agency in the last 56 years and asked for Jim Wallace, there's been someone there to answer the phone. So it's kind of a, kind of a cool thing. Now, I'm going to share with you today some stuff that I've been writing about for years, um, even as a believer, at a website called coldcasechristianity.com. I'm only saying this because I want you to know we're going to cover a bunch of information today. It's going to feel like you're drinking water out of a fire hose. I don't want you to get overwhelmed. There's a place we can go online where you can kind of catch up. And there's actually a phone app where everything that's on the website is available for you online, on the phone, including this video of today's talk. It's available online. You can watch it from your phone. And if you want to reach out to me, that's all another, another way to do it. Just use the social media to do it, okay? Now, that being the case, you guys have been going through a series and you don't know how rare it is that a church family will actually ask the difficult questions. So I want to congratulate you, first of all, for the things I've been watching online from the last few weeks. And also, next week, um, you've got a, a great talk coming on the problem of evil, which I think is one of the things I have to address more often than anything else, right? If you're working murders, people want to know, why did that happen to my daughter? That is an issue about the problem of evil. And I think this is what you're going to be talking about next week. So make sure... You get here next week to hear that. Now, that being said, about a year ago, I was asked to do a scene in a movie called God's Not Dead 2. Not a very creative movie, either name if you ask me, right? Kind of like the Jim Wallace thing, right? Same name over and over again. Part two, we wanted to make a case for the reliability of Scripture in this courtroom scene, and we had six minutes to do it. It's hard to make a case for what you believe in six minutes. And I had to draw from all the material we've been talking about in this book, but I only had six minutes to throw it. Kind of hard to do. Well, we're going to try to do the same thing today, only we're going to do it in about 35 minutes. Okay, you ready? So get ready. Here we go. I'm going to teach you something about the nature of evidence before we start. There's only two forms of evidence. That's it. Direct, indirect. There are no other forms of evidence. Everything falls into one of those two categories. What is direct evidence? Eyewitness accounts. Nothing else counts as direct evidence. Everything else is indirect. DNA? Yep, indirect. Fingerprints? Indirect. Behavioral observation? Indirect. If you don't have an eyewitness who saw the crime occur, you're not going to be able to make a direct evidence case. Let's do one together. This is an object lesson. Let's look at this young man. He's been accused of killing his girlfriend with that baseball bat. He bludgeoned her to death. Okay, let's make the case. Let's make it with direct evidence. Well, what's direct evidence? Eyewitnesses. Well, he actually will admit to being there. So you could argue he's an eyewitness. Let's just interview him. Hey, what happened? Are we going to trust what he says? Not necessarily. 
We need another iconomic. Somebody who's not part of this argument. Somebody who saw the entire thing. Maybe the neighbor from across the street. She says, yeah, you know, I've been living across the street from that young lady for years. And she has this crazy boyfriend. They're always arguing. And on that particular day, they were arguing again. I could hear it from across the street. I look up through her plate glass window of her living room. And I can see they're in an argument again. And sure enough, at some point, he smacks her. He hits her a couple of times. Then he gets a baseball bat. He starts beating her with it. It was horrific. It's terrible. Then he runs out to his car. He drives off. Really, you saw that? Yeah. Well, do you know who this guy is? Oh, yeah, I know him. Oh, you know this guy? Oh, yeah. How do you know him? Well, they both grew up in this neighborhood. They've been dating for years. We're a very tight neighborhood. We, we all know each other. We all do holidays together and Fourth of July block parties, all that kind of stuff. As a matter of fact, on the day of the murder, he was wearing the shirt that I gave him for Christmas two years ago. That's a good witness. Would you agree? I mean, she knows the guy personally. He's wearing clothes that she gave him. If, we could, if this witness stands up in a cross-examination, we could make this case in front of a jury with one piece of evidence, her eyewitness testimony. And if we did that, this would be an entirely direct evidence case. Are we clear on this now? Okay. But what if things are slightly different? What if on the day of the murder, he's not wearing the shirt that she gave him for Christmas. And also on that day, the killer had a mask on his head. That would change things, wouldn't it? Now all she can say is, well, he's about the right height and weight, but she has no idea if it's him because he couldn't see his face. Okay. How do we make the case now? We'll have to make it indirectly because we have no eyewitness to testify. Let's go knock on his door. Dave, what were you doing yesterday? He gives us an alibi. He says that yesterday he was out drinking with two of his friends for several hours. Really? What are your friends' names? We go out and we talk to those guys, and they say they have not seen him in weeks. He's lying about his alibi. So now he fits the general description, and he's lying about his alibi. And at a search warrant at his house, we discover he's got a baseball bat. And in the thick part of the bat, it's all nicked up and dinged up like he's been using it for something other than hitting baseballs. And when we do a biological search for tissue or blood, nothing because he has soaked the bat in bleach. Now, how many of you have got a baseball bat? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Let me see it. How many of those, those bats are bleached? Yeah, no one wants to admit that, right? <laughs> yeah, because this is unusual. Bleached bat, bio alibi, fits the general description. Now, how many of you right now think this is our guy? Raise your hand. I want to see it. Okay, fine. We are in Illinois. <laughs> in California, no one would raise their hand right now. Nobody. We're in California? Think about it. In Texas, he's already been executed, okay? <laughs> That's why we all want to move to Texas, right? That's it, basically. No property taxes, and we are very conservative. All right. So let's add to this case. Let's, let's, it's also got a pair of jeans in the search warrant, and the jeans, they're glowing at the knees. Luminol is a chemical we use on certain surfaces. It'll glow in the presence of body fluids, blood, and some detergents. And sure enough, when we test the genes, they're covered in dirt, but they are clean right here. And they are not, there's no, he's successfully cleaned whatever he was spot cleaning because all we have now is the residue of detergent. But what is he cleaning? The pants are dirty, except right here. Apparently, he's not trying to clean dirt off the pants or he cleaned the entire set of pants. He's cleaning something other than dirt off the pants. He's got a bleached bat. He's got a BO alibi, and he fits the general description. And there's no sign of forced entry. Whoever did this murder did not have to kick a door or break a window to do it. They either knew the victim and she let him in voluntarily, or they had a key because they could get in voluntarily. And sure enough, 
Only three people had a key. The mom had a key. She passed away about two months earlier. The victim, she had a key, and the crazy boyfriend had a key. Now, he will tell you he's a crazy boyfriend. He knows he's got a crazy temper, and he'll admit that he loses his temper on occasion, and he has smacked her a few times. And afterwards, he says he always feels bad about it. He always apologizes. She always takes him back. But he does have a bad temper. He says, on the day of the murder, I will admit I lost my temper. And I did smack her. And I actually threatened to kill her in front of her girlfriends. But I was just upset because I found out on that day that she was cheating on me. Can you imagine who would cheat on this guy? (laughs) So he lost his temper. But he says, hey, I did not kill her. Hmm. Yeah, and the witness says when this guy ran out of the house, he had an unusual boot. A boot that had a piece of leather on the side that was kind of like a vertical striping. And he's like, wait, that's unusual. You do some research on that. There's only one manufacturer that makes a boot like that. They don't sell very well. Only one store sells that boot anywhere in the county. They've only sold 30 pairs in two years. But who do you think's got one of those 30 pairs in his, gro- in his closet? Our guy. Do you see what's happening here statistically? He's got a one in 30 relationship to the boot. He's a one in three relationship to the key. What are the odds that one of these guys is also one of those guys? See what's happening? And he was getting ready to commit suicide on the day you served the search warrant. Because the day earlier was the murder. The next day you're at his house serving the search warrant. He is writing a note at the counter as you're knocking on the door. And in that note, which you now read, you can see that he is suicidal about something he did yesterday, the day of the murder. He says he lost his temper. He has now hurt somebody that he loves, but he doesn't say who. He's destroyed his future and has no choice now but to kill himself. But nowhere, because he doesn't finish the note... Nowhere does it say he killed his girlfriend. And the witness says when he got in that car and drove away, it was an unusual car. Like, what was it? Well, like an early 70s, you know, kind of like a, like a Volkswagen Carmen Ghia. Do you guys even know what a Volkswagen Carmen Ghia is? Okay, raise your hand if you know what a Volkswagen These are the walking dead, okay? These people are so old, they know what a Volkswagen Carmen Ghia is. Pretty sad, really. And, you know, she says, yeah, it was like a yellow, canary yellow. Well, you do a search of DMV records. These cars don't even exist hardly at all anymore. There's a few of them out there, but not many. But what color are they? You don't know from DMV records. They don't tell you color. But when you do the search warrant at his house and pull up the garage door, what do you think he's got? He's got himself a 1972 Volkswagen Carmen Ghia canary yellow. Now, look, at this point, I think we could ask the question, isn't it possible that he's innocent? Of course it's possible. Possible doesn't matter in criminal trials. Because anything and everything is, it's possible you're still sleeping right now. It's possible this whole morning is a dream. Or you're in the matrix. Or you've been kidnapped by aliens and induced in an alien coma. We're making you think this right now. That's possible. Oh, no, it's not, Jim. I could pinch myself. That's part of the dream. (laughs) It's still possible you're dreaming this. But it's not reasonable. All we care about is reasonable. With the standard of proof is not beyond a possible doubt because you'd never convict anybody. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. We're looking to say, is this reasonable that he's still innocent? Now, a defense attorney is going to say, well, I can explain that some other way, and I can explain this some other way, and I can give you eight independent, unrelated causes that somehow have caused this mess that makes my client look like he's guilty. When in fact, he's actually innocent. Really? That's one way of looking at it. Of course, there's another way of looking at it. Isn't it more reasonable to see that he is the common causal factor that not only accounts for all the evidence, it unifies all the evidence. This is the more reasonable approach. He's either incredibly unlucky or incredibly guilty. This is what we call an indirect evidence case. 
It's also known as circumstantial evidence. Yeah, the other word for indirect evidence is circumstantial evidence. Oh, that's just junk. That's, I mean, I've heard that expression. Haven't you heard it? All they have is a circumstantial case. Oh, that's just a circumstantial case. How many times have you heard that? Really? Do you realize that 80% of criminal cases in America are just like this? All of my cold cases, 100% have been 100% circumstantial. And I love those cases for a couple of reasons. This is how I draw it in the book, Cold Case Christianity. This is what you get. My background before I became a police officer, I have a bachelor's degree in design and then a master's degree in architecture. <laughs> From UCLA, I'm a Bruin. My son's a Bruin also, Jimmy's a Bruin. And uh, my other son, David, though, is a doctor and he, is a, uh, he went to USC. He's a communist. So, depending on the day, I'm either a, a, a truin or a brogen. Depends on who's playing, really. So, we do these cases in criminal trials, but we don't just do them with eight pieces of evidence, right? We would do these with 80 pieces of evidence that point to the same reasonable inference as a suspect. I call that death by a thousand paper cuts, right? Because this one thing here may not feel like it's all that important, but if you have enough of these put together, you're going to have a problem. Make sense? So I love these circumstantial cases for a couple of reasons. Number one, judges instruct juries to consider indirect evidence, circumstantial evidence, with the exact same value as direct evidence. And it kind of sounds like this in our jury instructions in California. Both direct and circumstantial evidence are acceptable types of evidence, and neither is entitled to any greater weight than the other. So stop saying all you have is a circumstantial case unless you're willing to say all you have is a bunch of eyewitnesses, which you would never say, right? Now, why am I telling you all that? Because I want you to move this now toward Christianity. The other kind of case you have is a direct evidence case, which is about eyewitnesses. And I don't even like those cases sometimes. Why? Because eyewitnesses lie all the time. And I have been burned by them in, in trial while the Dateline cameras are rolling in the courtroom. That's the worst time, by the way, to find out your witness is lying, okay? Because you can't take that back. You can't change that. What are you going to do? You test eyewitnesses. And I've learned how to test eyewitnesses to make sure they're not lying. We have a process for this. It's based on four criteria in criminal trials. And here are the criteria. Now, to make it easier for you, I'm going to give it to you in simple words, single words, to make sense of it. If a witness, this is in the jury instructions, if a witness can be demonstrated to really be present when he says he was to see this, if he can be verified or corroborated in some way, if he has been honest and accurate over time and has not changed his story, and finally, if he doesn't possess a bias, a motive, a reason why he would lie to you, then you are to consider his testimony reliable. So at 35, my wife was very interested in going to church. We were not believers. We didn't own a Bible. We decided to go to a big, huge mega church in Southern California. We get in there, and the pastor threw Jesus in a way that I could catch him. He said, you know this Jesus guy? He said a lot of things, but he said, Jesus is the smartest man who ever lived. I thought to myself, really? Let me see if that's true. So I bought a Bible, and I started reading the wisdom's teaching of Jesus. And I realized as I was reading it, these people who wrote this, they want me to believe this stuff actually happened. I can test that. I could actually test the gospel authors to see if they're telling me the truth under these four criteria. Now, we're only gonna do 
three of these this morning because we've got to go fast. But let me just start with this one. Were they really there to see what they said they saw? If you want to lie about Jesus, here's the best way to do it. Wait till everyone who knows the truth is dead. Write about him later. But if you write about him early, it's a problem. This is a guy who was accused of killing a little girl in our town in 1972. My dad was the, one of the case agents on it. We had him in custody for some time because he had confessed to all of it, but none of his confession was true. A thousand pages, every gruesome detail, none of it was true. He wasn't even there. He's got issues, but he's not a killer. You can't be the killer if you weren't there. You also can't be a witness. And that was my suspicion about the gospel authors. We've got this event called the ministry of Jesus. It's recorded. It's in your Bible. It's in the gospels. The first time a group of Christians comes together to decide which gospels get in, what is the New Testament going to be comprised of is the Council of Laodicea. That is 330 years downfield. If the gospel authors wrote the gospels late in history, they cannot be eyewitness accounts that you can trust because they were not written by eyewitnesses. Those folks have been dead for 300 years. And by the way, there are lots of skeptics who are biblical scholars who are writing about this. One of them is Bart Ehrman. He's written a number of books in which he makes the case that he can't, you can't trust what's in the scriptures because they are written by people who didn't actually see it. They weren't written early enough to have been written by eyewitnesses or even more importantly, to have been fact-checked by those who were there. Really? Well, if he's, he's right. If, if they're written in late in history, you can't trust them. Now, of course, if they're written somewhere earlier, the closer they actually get to the events, the more reliable they would be. Make sense? I think they actually are early. I'm going to make a circumstantial case for this. This is why I taught you about circumstantial evidence. You ready? Bible call, uh, scholars here, uh, Sunday school graduates, you ready? Luke wrote a book about the apostles after the death of Jesus. He rises into heaven. He's resurrected. He rises into heaven. There's a book that records the activity of the apostles in the first century from Asia Minor to Jerusalem. That is called the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, does Luke ever describe the destruction of the temple? That occurs in 70 AD. Yet it's missing from the books of, book of Acts. You would think he would include it, because number one, he's writing about the region. This is a huge, epic event, because for years prior, the city of Jerusalem had been blockaded and barricaded, and anyone who tried to get out was executed on the road out. And they starved the inhabitants of Jerusalem for two years and eventually broke down the walls, destroyed the city, and sacked the temple. The temple has never been the same, yet all of this is missing from the book of Acts. Wouldn't you think Luke would include it if for no other reason? He predicts it. Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. Well, it actually happened. But Luke's not going to mention the, the prediction was fulfilled. Not only that, Paul is still alive at the end of the book of Acts. So is Peter. Luke does not mention their deaths at all. Luke doesn't even mention the death of the leader of the Christian church, the largest congregation, the largest group was in Jerusalem, led by the brother of Jesus, James. He is executed in Jerusalem in 61 AD. These three men are killed, and Luke says nothing about it. Luke has no problem mentioning death. He mentions the death of Stephen. Who cares about Stephen? Seriously, these guys are the stars. He even mentions the death of James, the brother of John. That happened in 44 AD. Why would you leave out James, the brother of Jesus? All of this stuff is missing. Why is it missing? Let's just make a, a, an inference out of this for a second. What if Luke writes the book of Acts prior to any of this happening? That would explain why it's missing. So I'm going to put Luke's book of Acts one year prior to the first missing date. Now, we know he wrote two books. This is not a trick question. The other book is called The Gospel of... 
Luke, yeah. <laughs> that he wrote first. We know he wrote it first because he tells us this in the first lines of the book of Acts. He tells Theophilus who he's writing to. In my former book, there it is, Gospel of Luke. Now, let's test this inference and see if my dating head makes any sense. I'm going to put this at 53 for a reason. There are two places in Scripture where we have some hidden clues that maybe you haven't noticed before. One is in a letter from Paul to Timothy. In 1 Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, hey, take care of your church leaders. They deserve to be compensated. I know this, Timothy, because my Bible tells me so. Well, uh, really? What is his Bible? Wouldn't you love to know what Paul is holding as his Bible as early as 64, 63? He's going to tell you right now. He's going to quote from his Bible. He says, the scripture says, that's his Bible, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. That is from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy. But then he says, it also says the worker deserves his wages. That is not from the Old Testament. That is from the New Testament. That is from the gospel of Luke. So we know Luke's gospel is considered scripture as early as 63 because he's quoting it to Timothy as early as 63. But he does it in another place too. He does it in the, gospel, the uh, letter to uh, the Corinthians. This is a much earlier text. And here he's telling this Corinthian church, hey, go back to how I taught you to do the Lord's Supper. And he quotes scripture to re-instruct them. And what is he quoting? Only one writer mentions it this way. He also is quoting the gospel of Luke. Only he's quoting it much earlier, about 10 years earlier. And he's telling this church, I taught you this earlier. He probably planted the Corinthian church around 51. So this has been around for a while. I'm putting it at 53. I think that's reasonable. Now look at the first verse of Luke's gospel. Luke will tell you he was not there to see Jesus. He just reported what he learned from the eyewitnesses. He was there in the book of Acts. He even slips into first person in the book of Acts. But he met the eyewitnesses during that time. And then he wrote about what Jesus did based on what he learned from eyewitnesses. He even says this. Many have undertaken to drop the account of things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Wow. There are some interesting words that detectives pin on. We love adjectives and adverbs because that gives us a clue to who you are. So here are some adjectives and adverbs that I think matter here. He says, hmm... I've carefully investigated. Well, you're bragging about that? Why would you say that you carefully? Does that matter? I think it does, especially if you're trying to distinguish your account from another early account. There is an earlier account that is different than his. It's called the Gospel of Mark. And it's very brief compared to Luke's account. If you're going to say one thing about Luke's account, it is careful. He also calls uh, Theophilus most excellent. This is a title that's typically reserved for leaders in the local cities. So Theophilus may not even be a Christian. He may just be a local leader who's not a Christian. He's writing this too. But then he uses this word, which for me was a clue, orderly. I'm writing for you an orderly account. He's writing an historical narrative. Don't you assume it's in the right order? Didn't you assume all the Gospels are in the right order? Do I really need to say that? That word in the Greek means correct chronological order. Well, this thing starts with the birth of Jesus. It ends with the ascension of Jesus. Couldn't you assume everything in the middle is in the right order? Well, why would he say that? I'm assuming that history is always given to me in the right order. Well, what if there's another early account out there that is not in the right order? There is. It's the same account he was talking about here. It's called Mark. 
the Gospel of Mark. We know that Papias, a bishop, a very early bishop in the church, he says that Mark's account was written at the feet of Peter. And Mark was careful, if not orderly, and he uses the same Greek word. In other words, Mark's account, because Peter's teaching in themes, has all the details he put in there, but they're not necessarily in the correct order. And if you compare Mark's account with Luke's, you'll see that Luke has some things in different order. Why? Because he's writing the orderly account. But that means, and by the way, who do you think he quotes word for word more than any other source? Mark. That means that Mark's account has to be available for him to quote. Now, you see what we just did? We just backed up the dating. We're too close. Too close to lie. But it could still not be true. I mean, maybe they just pulled it off some other way, but at least it passes the first test. When we do this work with criminals, we typically are asking the question, is our guy available to do the crime? Here what we're saying, is our guy available to really be an eyewitness? Now, we're going to skip through the next one, and this is a very detailed piece. I teach a class at Biola in Los, in Los Angeles County where this takes about 17 hours to teach this course. So we're going to skip that 17 hours. We're going to just go right to the... So if you were wondering if there was a God, I just proved it to you, right? Because I'm skipping this mess, okay? So yeah, I could do a 17-hour talk, but I'm not. Therefore, there is a God. Okay, just so you know. <laughs> we're going to go right to here. Has it changed over time? Has it been honest and accurate over time? That's an important issue. A lot of times we'll take people to jail. This is another Dateline case. The only thing that got this guy caught was that he changed his story over 25 years and made it more and more elaborate. Look, if you're gonna change your story, you're probably lying to me. That was my suspicion. Okay, fine. You're telling me it's early? Even if it is early, how do I know that what's recorded over here makes it into the canon without being changed? Maybe Jesus is a much simpler version than the first gospel. But the gospel gets altered over time. Jesus never walked on water, never performed miracles, never rose from the grave, wasn't born of a virgin. Those are the things that were added to the story over time. This is why Bart's got a book, Bart Ehrman's got a book called How Jesus Became God. He became God over many centuries of, of small alterations. Same thing happens in criminal trials. Got a crime scene here. And I'll put in here, uh, hopefully, this, this has been giving us a little bit of a glitch here, so give me a second to get it to work. Crime scene, courtroom. Now here's a question. I'll put a piece of evidence in the crime scene. Watch it. There it is, the casing. Now I'm going to bring that casing into court years later. But how, and I'm going to say, by the way, there is an extractor pin mark on that casing that demonstrates that this came out of the suspect's gun. His extractor pin makes that mark. So that extractor pin mark is a good piece of evidence, and it demonstrates that this guy is the killer. Really? So how do I know that you didn't pull that casing out of property years later and etch in the extractor pin mark and put it back in property? And the people who followed you at the crime lab, they had no clue that you actually did that. And you then pulled it out as a cold case detective. You had no clue. Whoever did this could have done it years before you even came in the case. You had no idea this was even done. Now you've got a bad piece of evidence in your trial. It's very different than the original. Yeah, there was an original there, but it didn't look like this. Couldn't the same thing be true of one of the Gospels? Let's say, for example, the Gospel of John. Now, years later, we're going to bring it into trial, into the courtroom, which is the council. But how do I know if this original is the same as the one I have now? For all I know, just like this guy, somebody changed it. They had 300 years to change it. Who's paying attention? By the time it gets here, this guy's no better than you. He has no idea that what he's trotting into the council is a very different gospel than what we started with. 
Can you see the problem? I'll tell you how we solve this problem in, in criminal trials. We asked this question. Okay, back here. Do we have an officer who was back at the crime scene in 1980 and saw that? Well, yeah. Did he take a picture of it? Do you guys know what a Polaroid is? All the dinosaurs raise your hand. Good job. Well, did he, take a, did he write a report? Did he write a supplemental report? In his report, does he mention the extractor pin mark? That would be helpful, because then we at least have, let's back this up. Yes, this is having some fun here with my PowerPoint. Now, he's going to give it to somebody. Probably going to give it to my dad, or someone like my dad. And if my dad took it from this guy, he would write a supplemental report describing what he received from the officer. Make sense? Okay. Then, he's going to give it to somebody, the crime lab. They're going to write a report, take photographs of what they got from my dad. And then I'm going to come along years later and write a report of what I got from them. And in each one of these reports, I better have the extractor pin mark explained, right? It should be there in all the reports, because if it was there in the beginning, everyone is going to mention it. And each of these people is like a link in a chain from the past to the present. And that's why we call this the chain of custody. And for every significant piece of evidence in any criminal trial, we're going to have to show how it got from there to here through the chain of custody. Is there a chain of custody for the New Testament? Yeah. I'll, I'll show you one. Here's uh, our crime scene, and here's our courtroom. First officer at the crime scene, a dude named John. He's going to make a report of Jesus. The question, of course, is, well, what do we think is in his report? Well, how would I know? Well, did he give it to anybody? Who's the next officer in the chain of custody? Well, yeah, he did give it to somebody. He gave it to his three personal students. We know their names. Papias, Ignatius, Polycarp. These are his personal students. If you wondered what John said in his report, you could ask these guys. Well, how am I going to ask those guys? Well, they became leaders in the local church. And they wrote their own reports to local churches. And we still have those. There are seven surviving letters from Ignatius. If you're wondering what John taught, read Ignatius. Now, we lost the stuff from Papias, but we have one report from Polycarp to the church in Philippi. These are ancient church documents that we don't have in our Bible, but they will at least give you a snapshot of what John was teaching. Now you can compare this guy to John, this guy to this guy, this guy to this guy, this guy to John. Now, it turns out these three, two of them, had a student named Irenaeus who became an important church leader and defender of Christianity, and he wrote a ton, and we still have almost all of it. And he even had a list of 24 New Testament books. Look, people have been telling you that the canon of Scripture was assembled fraudulently by some church council in the 4th century. That's bull. This thing is quoted immediately and listed hundreds of years before a church council. The councils don't create the canon. The councils confirm a canon that's already in use. Get it? Good. I'm paying attention to what Jim does, okay? I'm just trying to work the whole thing. Irenaeus has got a student named Hippolytus. Hippolytus then becomes a leader as well, but he gets into some trouble. He dies in custody. So I cannot find what I would consider to be a reliable student of Hippolytus. I think Origen is probably the student of Hippolytus. But aside from that, we can now test, what are they saying? Is the story of Jesus changing over time? This is only one chain of custody. In the book, I described two more, one through Paul. His two students, Linus and Clement, he mentions in his letters, became the first two bishops in Rome, all the way through to Tatian. Here is one from Paul, I mean Peter rather, through his student Mark, 
he picked the first five bishops in the North African church all the way to Eusebius. My point here is that I can now, I look at image after image, picture after picture, report after report to see if the Jesus story is changing. I can do it in three entirely different parts of the kingdom, entirely different parts of the empire. And I can compare these. So if you lost all the gospels we have, the primary documents you think you're using to know anything about Jesus, and all you had were the first officers in the chain of custody, you're still good to go because nothing has changed. They're going to report Jesus the exact same way. Born of a virgin, preached sermons, worked miracles, died on a cross, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. Nothing changes. It's early and it never changes. Let's go to the last one. It's about bias, okay? How do I know if they're motivated to lie? You know, we have this bar in our town called the Crest, and the Crest bar is one of those bars where bikers kind of get together and get drunk, and then they, they fight each other. You got a bar like that around here anywhere? Is that, is that true here too? And sure enough, these guys will argue and fight, and when you get there, the one drunk guy's gonna say, he should go to jail. And this drunk guy's gonna say, he should go to jail. So who do you think goes to jail? They both go to jail, right? Well, they're drunk in public, that's good. And two, they're both liars. And they're motivated to lie because they don't want to get in trouble. They want the other guy to get in trouble. It turns out that the only three motives for bad behavior are pretty easy to identify. As a matter of fact, they're the same three motives for any murder. Murders are only committed for one of three reasons. That's it. Are you ready? Same three reasons. You get to a murder scene, oh, a thousand reasons why someone would do that. No, there aren't. There are three reasons. You find me somebody who's got one of those three reasons, we're good to go. By the way, these are the same three reasons behind any theft, behind any lie, behind any sin you've ever committed or ever will commit. If you could somehow eliminate these three motives, you'd never sin. Good luck with that, by the way. And it all comes down to these motives. I'll just give them to you so it makes it easier. The first one is pretty obvious. It is financial greed. That's behind a lot of stupid. The second one is kind of like the first. It's, it's sexual or relational lust. The third one is more nuanced, and it's a little harder to predict, and that is the pursuit of power. And a lot of things fall in this category. When one gangster kills another gangster because they've been disrespected, why would they do that? Well, it's the pursuit of power. It's authority, respect. You disrespected me. That's behind this. Make sense? Now, why is this so valuable for us? Because if you're saying to me, saying to me that, that the disciples were motivated to lie because they were biased, they wanted to tell a lie, okay, great. I now know what drives all lies. If they're lying to us, if the disciples are lying to us, they're only lying for one of these three reasons. These are the only three reasons why anyone ever lies. If you think there's a fourth reason, you're wrong. There's only three. Sorry. And I, just, I didn't even know that from Scripture. By the way, that is in Scripture. It's in 1 John. But I didn't learn it that way. I learned it by working cases. These are the three. But apparently, Scripture actually describes the world the way it really is. So you'll find it in 1 John, too. Now, what is it driving the disciples? Is, are they trying to get rich? I don't think so. Are they trying to get girlfriends? I don't think so. Are they trying to get powerful? Now, a lot of my skeptical friends, and I actually landed here, look, for a small fledgling community, if you're the guy who has the story and you're in charge, you've got something that would be worth lying about. You've got power. But wait a minute. Most of what we're talking about here in the New Testament is written by a guy named Paul. You're telling me that Paul is driven by this? I don't think so. 
Is he driven by this? I don't think. He's driven by that then, huh? Oh, you, really? So Paul, who started off as a religious Jew with all kinds of authority and respect, even enough authority and respect to draw papers to have Christians executed, that guy decides one day, you know what? I'm going to jump out of this position of authority and respect and power. I'm going to jump in with these Christians and spend the next 25 years getting my butt kicked all over the world. And maybe at the end of that, if I'm lucky, I'll be back in the same position of authority, power, and respect I started with. Think about it. Is that possible? Sure. Is it reasonable? You know what? If you're a Christian leader in the first century, you're kind of like this deer with this birthmark. (laughs) That's a bummer of a birthmark, Hal. Isn't it? You don't want that on your chest. If you're a Christian, that's on your forehead. Because you know how these guys who allegedly had power and authority, you know they didn't even have the power and authority to control the way they died. None of these died a nice, easy death. John's really the one we don't know the most about, but the deaths of the disciples, the deaths of the eyewitnesses are pretty powerful. Now look, you might say, well, Jim, I would be willing to die for Christianity, for what I believe as a Christian, as a Christ follower. So what? That has zero evidential value. There are lots of people who die for what they don't know is a lie. People are being killed all over the planet for all kinds of religions. That has no evidential value. But these guys are in a different position because these guys would know if it's a lie. The rest of us don't know if it's a lie. We are dying on trusting. These guys didn't have to do that. They knew if it was true. Yet you're telling me with nothing to gain, they were willing to be tortured to death. Really? All right. We started off, right, with this view of how you build a case. And we built a case together. Now we're going to look at a view of how we build the case for the reliability of Scripture related to Jesus. We're going to build it the same way, folks, because this is how we make cases. You make cases cumulatively. We're going to do it on four basic pillars. One, is it early enough? I've given you good pieces of evidence to suggest that this is, in fact, reasonable. That's a reasonable inference. We didn't talk about anything in this category. This is the 17 hours I spared you. But there's a lot of stuff in that category, much of which takes forever. But I will send this to you. I will send you a video that has all of this stuff in it, all right? And this area over here is the area of transmission. How do we know if it's changed over time? We have a chain of custody. We can check that. And that chain of custody is actually pretty sufficient. And then finally, the issue is how well are these attested? Do they have a reason to lie to us? If so, what is it? So when I got done, here's where I was. Look familiar? It's death by a thousand paper cuts. And I thought, okay, now what do I do with this? And this is why when someone asks me, why are you a Christian, I don't do it on Twitter. I don't come back on Twitter or Facebook. I'm like, you got two hours? Because it's going to take me two hours to go through this. But if you really are interested, I want to share with you how this to me was powerful and left me believing that the Gospels are reliable. Now, if you ask me today, why are you a Christian? The one thing I will say that's pretty quick is I'm not a Christian because it works for me because it doesn't work for me. And I bet you already know that for yourself too if you really think about it. This is no longer the culturally accepted, convenient worldview to hold in America, would you agree? We're in the midst of a sexual revolution that will make, they'll basically become the wedge issue that drives Christians from culture. So if you're gonna say, if you're gonna jump in with us, don't do it because it works for you. This is not gonna give you your best life now. It's not. There's going to be hard days being a Christian. 
My wife and I were together for 18 years before either one of us became Christians. We've been together about 20 years since becoming Christians. I will tell you, if you ask Susie, she'll always say the eight, first 18 years are a lot easier. Why? Because it's really easy to throw the dart against the wall and just draw the bullseye around wherever the dart lands. If you asked how Jim was doing back then, I would tell you he's doing great. How do I know? Ask Jim's God. Oh, that's Jim. But things are different now. I have to do the right thing. Deny myself most of the time. I'm in a period of repentance every day. I have to trust in a God that's not me. Because I know what a mess I am. Before, I never paid attention to what a mess I was. I'm painfully aware of it now. And I'm not a Christian because I was, you know, wishing for heaven or afraid of hell. I, those things don't animate me. I wasn't a Christian. Be, I didn't become a Christian because my parents were Christians. I had no one to show me. I didn't become a Christian because I had a train wreck life I was trying to fix. I didn't have a train wreck life. We had a great life before becoming Christians. I'm a Christian because it's true. That's it. But wouldn't you rather be in an inconvenient truth than in a convenient lie? I'm going to ask my brothers and sisters and the worship team to come back up here. Because if you're in this room right now, I get to travel all over the country and speak at all kinds of different churches. I don't even think you guys realize how blessed you are to be in this church, to be in the middle of this series, to be in the middle of, of a place where you can ask questions. Have you even taken advantage of it? I mean, I'm serious. I, I, I look at all kinds of church websites. Do you realize what you can do here? If you're not a believer yet, they have something called Alpha, which not every church in America does, by the way, but they're gonna do it here again in September, on September 28th. Get in it. Have you, been a, have you been here a while as a Christian and you haven't done Alpha yet? Seriously? You want me to know what you love, what you worship? Show me your calendar. I'll tell you right now what you love, what you worship. Show me your pocketbook. Show me your checkbook. It's where you spend your time and your money. That's what you really love. Oh, it takes a lot of time to do this. Really? Next time you're sitting in front of Sports Center, think about it. You've got time to worship God with your mind. And you may not even be connected in the community here. This is a great place to be connected in the community. You gotta decide if you wanna do that. Ah, oh, you know what, it's always about the church. No, no, you don't do this life as a Christian, even as a thoughtful Christian outside of community. This is always done in community. We believe in a triune God who is community by definition. You wanna live the Christian life? It's gonna be in community. You're not in a community group yet? What are, you, what are you waiting for? Now I'm gonna send you everything we did today. It's available at the weekend teaching page, which is right here, ccclife.org forward slash weekend teaching. There's a link there. You hit it, I will send you the video, not just this video, but the video of the entire talk, all the PDF files for the entire talk, all the MP3 files for the entire talk. I'm even gonna send you the Bible inserts for the chain of custody, and for the early dating timeline in color. So you will have them, you can put them in your Bible. Master the truth, or the lie is going to master you. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we know that we can do better. We know that we can be more thoughtful. And as we're getting ready to worship you with our words and with our songs, help us to remember how important it is to worship you with our minds. And that every time we stop and think about the case 
for your existence. We are worshiping you. We're giving you the thoughts we could give to something else. Help us to be that kind of Christ follower. We pray this in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ. And everyone here says, amen. Thanks, guys.